My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. Number one is you can write a brief review on iTunes. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply become a patron. My guest today is Ursula Aysin. Ursula is the founder and CEO of RedSwan, a Vienna-based consultancy focusing on the development of future scenarios. If my research is right, she is a trained ballerina. She plays the flute. She does math and reads chemistry books for fun. And she speaks seven languages, including Mandarin. Besides that, Ursula is a mentor to various Austrian and international startups, while also giving lectures at five universities. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Ursula. Thank you for having me on, Nicola, and thank you for this very nice introduction. I look good on paper. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Speaking seven languages, that's, that's quite impressive. So, how did you end up speaking seven languages, by the way? Because, quite honestly, you know, I've interviewed 300 people. Supposedly, some of them, at least, were among the smartest people in the world. There's very few of them that match, let alone surpass that number. Well, I think my father was already a language enthusiast. Um, he actually is a um, physician, a doctor, a medical doctor, but I think he would have preferred to become a translator and an interpreter. So uh, this interest for language um, was his maybe, and I picked that up. And um, well, I think even in Europe, it's not that special to speak many languages. And as uh, I'm living in Vienna, I'm an Austrian, and Austria alone has like eight different neighbors. And except from Germany and Switzerland, they do not speak our language. And Switzerland kind of speaks our language. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a lot about this uh, Swiss German. Yes, it's uh, kind of hard to understand for us, but Germans also say our our German is also hard to understand, so it's also two countries divided by language. So language is a big thing in Europe, So, and um, I always just picked it up, and when I wanted to go to college, it was like, okay, uh, let's pick a really hard one. And I started to learn Mandarin Chinese and actually uh, became a sinologist, which is not only learning the language, it's also understanding the history, the economy, the politics, the whole country, how that all works. And I really can say after studying this whole country for more than six, seven years, you become very humble. You think, uh, in, I think in the beginning, people who visit China think they should write a book. Then people who live there for half a year think they maybe should write a booklet. And when you come to staying there for several years, you, you just think you don't understand anything of that and still trying to do it. So, but that's also how I became um, actually a translator for Mandarin Chinese. Wow. So you're a sinologist. Uh, which, of course, is kind of like e e capturing the whole cultural dimension, it economics, is. politics, history, language, culture, tradition, the whole nine yards. So let me ask, and you're a futurist too, so let me 
jump right in. Is the future Chinese? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, because what I always ask in uh, the future scenario process is I, I'm running for international organizations, governmental organizations, corporations of all kinds and sizes. Um, I always ask the question, is this a world we want to live in? And uh, actually, a lot of things uh, in China are not um, a desirable future. For example, China declared, I think it was in 2018 or 2019, they want to become world leader in artificial intelligence. And uh, well, why did they want to do so? My guess is that they want to control the people. And that um, I think I'm a real... Um, technological, uh, technic enthusiast, to call it that way. And, but I'm very critical. Why am I so critical? Because I love technology. I want to see it applied in a good way, in a way that it is for the benefit of, peop of people and not to control the people. Um, I do write a monthly column for Austria's biggest um, technology magazine. And 2019, I actually wrote about this um, AI in China and the dark side of AI, the dark side of the power of AI. And I do not think we should use it in that way. I think China wants to use it in a way that they can make sense of all the data they are gathering from from their citizens. Um, and it, it really has come to a crazy space. Even I think in 2019, there were some hotels who did not only require you to scan your face, but also to give them um, a drop of your blood to be analyzed and to, to create a, a database of uh, DNA analysis. And I think that wow. really goes too far. And I really would wow. like to see that in Europe. Well, I, I I watched a lot of documentaries and read a lot about that. I've never heard about getting a drop of someone's blood and DNA. That's way beyond ridiculous. It is. Wow. So, okay, you're saying that that kind of future is maybe not desirable, but is it not probable given the rise of China, its domination of not only the Silk Road, but also which spans all the way from China to Europe now and goes into even Africa. And, you know, we we know there's like something like almost 2,000 Chinese companies which are building railroads and dams and, you know, all kinds of huge power plants and huge industrial projects all over Africa, not to mention, you know, commerce and all those other business dimensions. So... And there are sort of a, a rising economic power, a rising military power, trying to reassert themselves more and more aggressively, not only with respect to Taiwan, but also Vietnam, all over the South China Sea, and eventually with sort of the investments that they put in their navy, um, I think because whoever controls the seas controls the world, as the old saying goes. Right, so they clearly have global aspirations at the very least. Many analysts are saying that their kind their rise is kind of inevitable given their demographic and economic power. So you're saying they're not a desire the desirable future for us, perhaps. 
especially in the West, but are they the probable future? I think all what you said is very um, accurate. And um, of course, uh, the probability um, is high. And as you, as you mentioned, um, I think people have to understand that the China is thinking in long term um, they really have a long-term thinking. Like for us, uh, I was involved a lot in Austrian politics. Um, polit politics is usually short-term thinking because, uh, you know, after the election is before the election and actually a politician has about one or two years to really do something. But in China, it's very different. They think in decades. I, I've recently heard of someone asking um a Chinese politician, if um, he thinks the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment movement was successful, and he said it's too early to tell because they're thinking in really, really in decades. And um, I think I studied that actually quite a lot. Um, China uh, kind of wants revenge for the opium wars um, because then they were defeated and it was really like... They were humbled, right? They didn't have the power. And uh, But decades before, you mentioned the sea. China already in the 15th century, they already had a navy, a huge navy, but they managed to destroy it themselves because uh, the emperor and his, um, um, what is it called, the eunuchs, the, the, the men who were made not men. <laughs> I don't know how to The eunuchs. The eunuchs, yes. Yes, um, they were in power and they didn't like that. There, were a very, there was a very powerful general on the Navy and within a, a one generation, they actually destroyed uh, the whole Navy they had. If that wasn't the case, they might have been the ones to discover America yeah, before, before Columbus did. But they destroyed it themselves. And I think sometimes... Um, that's uh, that can happen in China. That they are thinking too much. Uh, we are China. All the others are barbarians. We have the best of the best. Another anecdote: um, when the British Empire came to to China, um, the the Queen sent a letter to the to the Chinese Emperor to um, offer um, trade and uh, political connections. And the emperor wrote back, well, that's really quite nice of the queen. And he, as the emperor of the heavens and the earth, will also protect the queen of Great Britain. But there's really nothing Great Britain could offer China that they do not already have. So sometimes there might be, um, I think this might be to their disadvantage, this kind of um, attitude. and But uh, we should never forget, it's for China, it's always about domineering the world. It's never less than that. So they, they, they have this goal, and if there are not other powers in between, they really they, they strive for world power. Um, but what I meant with, is this um, a world we want to live in? Um, when we talk about world powers, people might feel a bit disempowered because what can you do? If China is rising, you don't like that, or other things rising, you don't like that. That's a bit too big to change for a single person, but you can make decisions for yourself every single day. Like you cast your vote with every video you watch, with every technology you use, 
is that really something I want to do? We are not that powerless. Even if there are other political powers rising, we are still human beings. We can still connect to others and still can cast a vote. Technology, for example, is not something that is God-given. It's um, sometimes um, technology wants to present itself that way, but it's actually not. You know, that kind of a desire to dominate the world, you know, America had this idea called manifest destiny, which basically is the, the same idea that they're a city on a hill designed to, you know, dominate and, and kind of rule the world directly or indirectly. Um, China, you said they were humbled. I, I think the word that they would use is humiliated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the Opium Wars. Thank you. <laughs> and, and they have this idea first from communism that, you know, their victory is inevitable. Mm. And now with the rise of, you know, their massive population and their massive economy and their sort of... Uh, growth in terms of science and technology, they're thinking that those are other reasons why the, the world sort of dominance of China is also inevitable. Um, they kind of demonstrated what happens when you get under their influence with Hong Kong. And for all intensive purposes, they broke all the agreements of the annexation of uh, Hong Kong back or the return of Hong Kong back to China by the between the British and the Chinese, where I think it was for, for at least 50 years. And the, the transition happened in 1997, if I remember. Mm -hmm. But for 50 years, China was supposed to have, quote, one country, two systems kind of idea, uh, which is, you know, Hong Kong is a part of China historically and culturally, etc. And yet, they would be given the freedom and the autonomy, at least within some bounds, to choose their own politics, to elect their own representatives and run themselves as they see fit with, you know, traditional freedoms that they have enjoyed, such as lack of censorship, freedom of speech, political uh, and other kind of freedoms. And yet all of that is now gone within a period of maybe two or three years. And it was kind of one repressive legislation after another where now when you look back at it, you know, there is no opposition anymore in Hong Kong. There is no freedom of speech. There is only censorship. Most of the opposition leaders are, including some super rich people with dual citizenship, many of them Canadians, by the way, who are thrown in jail some of them sentenced to decades uh, of prison sentences. And, you know, China doesn't even recognize their uh, Canadian or other foreign citizenship and therefore treats them as Chinese and therefore sees fit to do with themselves whatever they feel doing. Um, and so, yeah, that was another rant, kind of a long rant of me saying, I agree with you. I, I hope the future is not Chinese. I'm concerned it might be. I'm concerned even in the in the best case, China would exert tremendous influence on our future. Uh, and I agree with you that uh, we need to do whatever we can to to make that better rather than worse and and kind of steer it and direct it. 
mm-hmm. uh, in any way possible, I think. Um, yes, and I think China has a tradition in not um, really taking treaties so seriously. I think that's also something you have to understand from a cultural point of view. It's also between companies. Um, when companies approach me, like, should we do business in China? For me, it's always like, first of all, you have to know that China is not ruled of law. It's ruled by law. The CCP uses law to govern the people, but it's not uh, it's not rule of law as it should be in Western democracies. So a treaty, uh, a contract to them is not important, especially not when um, it's between them and the barbarians. And we, let's be honest, we are all barbarians for them. You know, maybe you know the word. It's called Zhongguo, the the land of the middle. They are in the center and we are on the periphery and we are all barbarians. They are civilized and we are all barbarians. And um, so uh, to them, a contract with us is actually not something that's so important. Another example is, for example, they joined the WTO in 2001. Um, A friend of mine started to work for the WTO in Beijing then 2001 he is still in China <laughs> doing the job China did not adhere to anything the WTO wanted them to change they just didn't do it they joined the WTO and I actually I discussed with um Chinese people from the big technology companies who are also very engaged in European political platforms for example i was very surprised to find them in there 20 years ago even like huawei chungxin zte they were in the european technology platforms to influence to lobby and they actually told me yeah you know what europe loves free trade we also love to do free trade in europe but you can <laughs> <laughs> but you of course cannot do it within china china has very protective laws who will always exclude foreign competitors especially from critical infrastructure like what happens in europe partially um, I remember in Austria, there were Huawei was approaching us because I worked for Austria's biggest um, PR and lobbying agency. They wanted lobbying to get into uh, the backbones of our mobile communication. And I said, we cannot do that. Please, please do not uh, let them do that. But I think in the end, um, uh, at least Hutchison, which is a Hong Kong-based enterprise, uh, is building backbones in Austria. And you really, really shouldn't do that. Chinese would never allow that. And by the way, the US would also not allow that. But that happens. But we do. Yeah, there's a lot about uh, that in Canada too. Hmm. Um, First, there were government permissions granted. Then they were withdrawn. And now we're kind of but but the problem is that our tech infrastructure does run on Chinese hardware and software, and so in many ways. And so the government now has given most Canadian IT companies like a phase-out period, I think, the way I understand it. And I forget if it was 2025 or something like that, after which time we have to move beyond any kind of routers and networks that were Chinese built or provided by Huawei and and others. So, but yeah, so 
we're kind of, as Canadians, we're usually kind of straddling somewhere in between America and Europe. So we're kind of usually doing the halfway point. We're not doing what the Americans are doing. We're not doing what the Europeans are doing. We're kind of doing both and neither in some ways. <laughs> well, um, let's see if it's a good strategy. Yeah, I kind of doubt it because it comes at a very high cost once you've built those that infrastructure and, and those networks. Uh, then you have that legacy built in and it's very expensive and very hard to migrate to another one. Mm. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. By the way, that quote that you gave me from that politician, of course, that Chinese politician uh, who said it's too early to say was quoting Mao. Mm. Uh, and that's a very famous story with Mao when he was visiting Europe, like I forget. 50 or 60 years ago when some student in France asked him about whether the French Enlightenment was successful or not. And he supposedly said uh, it's too early to say. But you should check up that story because it turns out it's a translation issue. Hmm. Uh, and actually, he, he didn't quite mean what the translator at the time translated. And that's where that story originated. And since you speak the original language, uh, I will would, look it up. I yeah. actually didn't know it as a Mao quote. I heard that yeah. recently, but I will check if who said yeah. that and if he said that. Yeah, and 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 so there was this whole kind of historical decades lasting idea that the Chinese have this very long term sort of uh, patience to evaluate whether something is successful or not. Uh, and, and actually, uh, I forget all the details surrounding that story, but they're interesting. But maybe it was even about uh, sort of the, the French protests. You know, in the 60s, there were huge student protests in mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. I think they were mostly against General de Gaulle. Uh, and I mean, he got kicked out of Canada at that time too, by the way, because uh, he came here and said... Uh, long live free Quebec, and then the Canadian government kicked him out basically immediately. Uh, but but so I think maybe the story was something about the students asking Mao about his opinion about the student protests. Hmm. And he said it's too early to say, but he meant about that. I forget. I have to double check that story, but it's, a, it's an interesting story. And that's the kind of the origin, the roots of where all those other stories are derived mm -hmm. from, by the way. Uh, yes, but either way, I think this long-term thinking, um, it's really a strategy of the Chinese, for example, also in s intelligence services. Um, I also I, I worked with some of the intelligence services in Austria for a while. We did some future scenarios for cybersecurity, for example, together with them. Yeah. And um, I think uh, in our... Um, intelligence services also the thinking usually, usually is more short term and uh, it's kind of admirable that even the intelligence services in China are thinking long term and I think I've seen that the way it works um, it's like for example all the foreign students everyone who goes abroad from China 
will have to report to their embassy. I've seen that in Austria. I've seen that in other countries. It's not that they are trained spies or anything like that. But if they need something, if they want to know something about a company, they, they will send them in. Many technological companies in Austria uh, have stories of that. Like you have the the Chinese um, foreign student, even my brother who studies um, electrical engineering at the university, Technical University of Vienna, he said, yeah, they, they are working on something that's for um, energy storage, very innovative, and they had a Chinese uh, exchange student and he he was going through the laboratory and always asking, oh, can I record that? Can I record that? And they were like, actually, no. You can't. Don't do that. So um, it's really, it's not uh, like all these students are trained spies like we would imagine, but they catch them early and sometimes they position them in a company and they really wait like for 40 years and then they come back to them and say, you know, we paid for your education. Now we need something. Yeah, by the way, there was a whole documentary I watched here about a year ago in Canada about the exact same thing that you're talking about and how actually, uh, because we have a huge uh, kind of Chinese diaspora in Canada, mm. uh, yes. and many of them are from Hong Kong, over a million people, I think, or, or close to a million maybe have a dual citizenship Maybe it was 600,000, I forget. But a huge number of people have a dual Hong Kong and Canadian passports, for example. And uh, many people also from Tibet and other, other places like that. And what's been happening is that they've been intimidated uh, on an ongoing basis. Even here, for example, uh, there were some, some crazy cases where, let's say, in Canada, where we kind of, uh, people would go to protest in front of the Chinese embassy or elsewhere, whether with, let's say, Tibetan flags or Hong Kong or what have you, and then they would face all kinds of intimidation uh, in many cases conducted by the, the said Chinese students that, that, that are visiting, that you're describing the case in, in Austria and, and in other places in Europe, but here exactly the same story. Uh, those Chinese students go and do favors to their embassy, which tells them, we're going to give you the protest signs uh, uh, in support of China, for example, against Hong Kong. Mm. And all you need to do is, while there is this big demonstration in support of Hong Kong in Toronto on the main square, Nathan Phillips Square, you need to go there at the same time, wave these flags and everything which we would provide for you. Mm. And we would be very grateful if you do that. So they're actually organizing counter protests and then giving people addresses of, um, let's say, Tibetan or independence movement organizers or um, Hong Kong activists. And then they start intimidating them at home, virtually, or even at work. Uh, so there was this one Tibetan protester, can Canadian uh, citizen also, who interrupted the Greek Olympic fire ceremony, which was handing over the fire to the Ch for the Chinese Olympics. Uh, and then she got intimidated by so many Chinese foreign students. It was like 
shocking to people, unbelievable. So there's a long history uh, of that, which kind of literally blew my mind about how aggressive, especially since it's intimidating Canadian citizens on Canadian soil. They're not even in China. Mm -hmm. And it's like literally impeding their Canadian rights, charter rights to protest or or gather Mm -hmm. or do anything like that. It's like shocking. Yes, um, I remember something like that happening in Austria as well um, with the Institute of Sinology in Vienna. Um, I think it was um, a film, a movie, something like that, that the Institute wanted to show, which was critical <laughs> of uh, the CCP. And um, it was actually cancelled because um, the embassy contacted the Institute and they told them, Yes, you can show that, but then we will not accept your students for scholarships in China anymore. And as a sinologist, it's pretty hard to learn Chinese if you cannot go to China. So yeah. as far as I remember, they decided not to show the movie. Blackmail. Yeah, it works. Yeah. And and unfortunately, they're doing that kind of international foreign policy over and over again, which country they banned and they literally deleted the country off the map. I'm trying to remember. Was it Estonia or was it Latvia or one of those small Baltic countries that uh, used the name Taiwan somewhere and then literally the, the Chinese bureaucracy removed the name of the country off the any import documents and now you cannot import anything from that country in China because technically under Chinese sort of import laws and rules, the country doesn't exist. Mm. So so I forget, it was one of the smaller Baltic countries. And, I, I didn't hear you know, about that. Yeah, so it's like literally anything goes. And of course now we've seen what happened with Taiwan and all that demonstration of shooting ballistic missiles over over the island and running circles around it with their Navy and with their Air Force and and saying, we're pretty much ready to go and take Taiwan anytime we want. Uh, Well, um, but um, the thing is, yes, of course, Um, when I uh, studied in China, um, when I spent a year there for the first time, it was 1999, 2000. There was also a crisis with Taiwan. It was like uh, on the news every day, Taiwan was like, we have all these missiles directed towards Beijing. Of course, you think, great, <laughs> just move to this country. Now there's a war. Um, and But... Uh, I've seen it actually many times. I think it's always uh, it's it is a two side way. It's usually not so easy to say these are the bad guys. You know, in war, you sometimes you have some provocation, and of course, to have all these missiles directed towards Beijing is a provocation. That is also um, um, sure. Of course, uh, how to react? Well, let's see. Usually, I've never seen more than um, threats from both sides. That is kind of, um, yeah, I thought it might be possible that they go to war, and I think it's still not decided if that will be the case. But um, looking at history, 
um, China, China usually wants to solve the problems in a diplomatic way, and they are actually quite good in that. So uh, usually they are actually not going to war. It might be the first time. Might, might be the first time they're going to war in in, in that kind of circumstances. Um, and I do not mean to say that they never went to war, but usually they try to solve these kind of problems by diplomacy. But I've seen these threats from Taiwan to Beijing and Beijing to Taiwan many times over the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you, but on the other hand, the Chinese capacity to wage war now is higher than it's ever been. Uh, yes. Or at least for like hundreds of years, it's not been as high as it is now. Um, and their rhetoric also has not rarely been as strong. And I think part of it is that, you know, they're having huge domestic problems recently. And I was reading some stats that were telling me that China is spending more on domestic security measures than on international security. Uh, in other words, they're more concerned about their own citizens yes, than they have to. foreign armies. Yes. Uh, and so one way to control foreign citizens, as we know well, is to come up with a sort of a external enemy. Yes. Exactly. And sort of wave the flag of the nation and the national defense as the highest priority. And that's a very powerful story. And they're not hesitating to use that in Taiwan now more than ever. On the other hand, I hope and I believe that the Chinese for sure are paying very close attention to what's happening in the Ukraine. And so um, they're hopefully learning the right lessons, which is that it's not so easy as you would think it is, even if you're a big, powerful military. And when people are motivated to resist you, they can do so for a long time at very high costs to you. And so in the end, it may not be worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so hopefully they're getting that lesson too, mm -hmm. though I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, I think we cannot... You cannot be sure. Mm. Um, but you mentioned something also very important. That was something I actually uh, did a lot of research on. Even 20 years ago, they had 180,000 uh, upheavals in China every year. I think from the outside, people think that China is suppressing everything and their cit citizens are never... Uh, protesting or anything like that. That's actually not the case. Uh, 180,000 upheavals Thousand. every 180,000 upheavals every year, and that was 20 years ago. Might be much more now. And most of these upheavals uh, were actually happening because um, people were living in areas where you have maybe um, a a company that um, provides chemistry or something like that. Then all their rivers got poisoned, people got cancer, so they protested. Right. That was why. And these were, but these right. were usually violent protests, and the world didn't know about that at all. So I think you're very right. China has big internal problems, and also at that time was what I was investigating was also they always create this xenophobia, like the foreigner. Is in in the town when I studied there there were um, 
they had TV shows where they presented the Westerner like, my God, look at them. They are like monkeys. They have hair on their arms. And it was really like creating a picture of they are less than we are. They are the enemy. They will attack us. So they always worked with that. And I think it can be used now more than more than ever especially i think that that um concerns me a bit that usually when political leaders have problems at home very often yeah. they start a war this really concerned me yeah and, and you know you can see those images in in movies for example china has you know historically speaking canada has been allowed to import Uh, a lot of movies into China in the last, let's say, 60 years for a number of reasons. There's lots of, there's a very large uh, Chinese or Mandarin, both Mandarin and Cantonese speaking minorities here in Canada. There's strong cultural connections. There's historic connections. Uh, so, but now that's, it's almost impossible to put any new Canadian mo produced movies in China anymore. Uh, because the Chinese kind of censorship machine or propaganda machine, should we call it, has a kind of a particular kind of a idea and image that it wants to create of what and who China is and Chinese people are and what and who foreigners are, including Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see that in many of their sort of big action uh, or production movies where, you know, usually the enemies are Japanese for good historical reasons, but, you know, it often goes into a caricature level. And then Europeans, usually Brits, um, take that that kind of a, after the Japanese invader, then the next one is usually a British kind of a imperial soldier or major or some, something like mm -hmm. that, like 18th, 19th century British uh, imperialism, which, of course, it has very good historical uh, reasons for it, but but still... It serves a new purpose in the present and in the future, which could be um, very dangerous uh, for for the whole world, in fact, uh, because it creates this story, this narrative that people are then moved by. And uh, it serves the rulers in China, but uh, at least in the short run, but we'll see what happens in the long run. Um, Ursula, I, I'm afraid we kind of diverged at the very beginning a little bit here with a whole lot of conversation about China, but I think it was hopefully kind of useful because first, you're an expert, you're a sinologist. Uh, but second, China, one way or another, would play a big role into our future, whether with respect to AI in particular or whether with other technology, like, for example, genetic engineering, uh, where they have a lot fewer, let's say, red lines or red tapes than equal researchers in the West. Yeah, like CRISP, uh, for example, they're already doing that. Like yeah, yeah, with CRISPR, that's right. Yeah. So so but let's let's backtrack a little bit and, and see if we can kind of refocus our conversation here. First of all, if I were if you were to introduce yourself in one sentence, Let's say we meet each other somewhere on an airplane. You're sitting next to me. And I ask you, who is Ursula Aysin? What What would you say in one sentence or less? I'm a human who helps other humans to connect to each other and to turn uncertainty into an advantage. 
wow to turn you're a human who helps other humans to connect with each other and turn uncertainty into an advantage beautiful wow okay so we'll talk about being human and we'll talk about uncertainty and we'll talk about advantages great so those are all interesting points i'm gonna grab them a little later though and i'll ask you first what is red swan Red Swan is my consultancy. It's a boutique consultancy in Vienna. I founded it in 2015. And our flagship is the development of future scenarios. We develop these future scenarios for international organizations, governmental organizations in Austria, big, small, middle-sized companies, and even individuals to help them to turn uncertainty into an advantage. <laughs> and why red? I mean, most people might know, or at least it, some people would know what a black swan is, mm -hmm. but why red? Yes, it actually is based on Black Swan, the famous book by Nassim Taleb. Uh, I'm a big fan of his um, Black Swans and the methodology we use, the development of future scenarios, of course, also uses Black Swan scenarios. Um, and we didn't want to... Um, to call our company something like Strategy Lab or something like that. Of course, it is about future strategy, but we didn't want to be that obvious. And why did we uh, choose red? Well, we are in the future scenario business, uh, but I'm also a communication professional of more than 20 years, and we use all our creativity and ability to communicate what we find out in a very creative and passionate way, and this is why it is red for, for creativity and passion. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, how did you end up doing futurism and why? In the year 2010... I happened to um, meet the former chief strategist of Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company, who happens to be an Austrian. He's called Karl Rose. And in 2010, he came back from his 25 years at Shell to Austria. And he wanted to start something new. And we met and he actually uh, gave me this gift of the methodology, which was originally um, invented by the U.S. Air Force in the 1940s, but famously applied by Royal Dutch Shell in the 1960s and 70s uh, with great success. Shell was already prepared for an oil shock scenario before um, other oil companies were even thinking about that. And from a rather weak market position, they were able to skyrocket to the number two of the world's biggest oil companies. And in 2010, I met him and it was like, this is really interesting. I really want to do that. I want to have a look into that. I was already a communication professional. I was a technology consultant, but I was really interested in what he was doing. And I actually helped him to um, transform this into a consulting process because actually Shell, of course, they have a lot of resources. They can do that all around the year. They do that since more than 40 years. I think it's more than 60 years, maybe. Um, and, um, but, of course, that's not very practicable for smaller companies. And actually, I get the question a lot, is this only for big organizations like the US Air Force and Shell? 
absolutely not. I do that for um, startups. I do a, a little scenario session, like one and a half hours with every startup I want to mentor just to see, are we on the same page? Do we see the same scenarios for the future? And you can also do it for individuals, for, for students, 13-year-old students who want to decide which school they want to choose. Wow. Um, what about the, because you mentioned Shell, and I forget how many years ago, but there was a report that because all the oil companies, uh, and I think the two most notable examples in the report given were Shell and maybe Enron at the time, we're talking probably late 80s, early 90s. But because of the futurist work that they do and because of the sort of depth and width of the research those companies do, they knew about climate change and they knew it was a fact since at least the late 80s and early 90s based on their own internal scientific research. And yet they suppressed that. So it, if that's true, it would seem that Shell knew about climate change without any doubt whatsoever, uh, you know, 40 years ago, and yet it didn't seem to do anything at the time, but decided to actually ignore the future, ignore the futurism, and just like Kodak before them, they were in love with their present and decided to ride that wave as long as possible. Actually, I have a bit of another information on that. Uh, as far as I know, they actually started early to invest in alternative energy resources. So um, that's not the information I have on that. But I actually, I do not want to defend the oil companies. Uh, <laughs> as you said, I think also before before there was um, Shell, for example, Standard Oil had a huge uh, say in will there be electric cars or will there be... Um, yeah, yeah. gas-driven cars. So, and and as they were interested in selling their their petroleum, um, yeah, Henry Ford wanted electric cars. Exactly, exactly. We could have had electric made of hemp, by the way, the body yes. made yeah. of hemp <laughs> and running uh, on batteries. Exactly. Sounds totally futuristic now, doesn't it? And they had <laughs> they had the patents for that already, but but oil companies actually decided no, we don't want this competition, so let's get rid of it. And um, I actually I love to do the process so much because I found out it's really about creating the future. It's never about never about trying to predict the future because that's actually quite a powerless position then it's already determined we cannot change it but it's rather about creating the future and um concerning that point i think shell always tried to create the future they wanted to have yeah i, I can see how historically and they've always made the claim uh, they've been one of the first investors in alternative energies, but that's mm. just good business diversification. Mm. It's just like, for example, me and my wife are vegan. <clears throat> we have been vegan now for over seven years. And we have this kind of a chain of restaurants here in Toronto. And there's uh, one in Los Angeles, I think, uh, called Fresh. And it's all super healthy you know, non-deep fried or anything like that, all vegan, fantastic food. 
And about, let's say, a year ago, they got bought, hmm. the whole chain. And they got bought by the same people who own the keg, who own A&W, fast food, who own a bunch of others. Um, and I think it's simply because that's good business. Those people uh, who so thus far have been deriving their revenue from, you know, the, the, the Kauschwitz uh, sort of industry and meat products, etc., are now seeing the writing on the wall that the fastest growing industry is plant-based foods and they simply want to diversify their business mm. and improve their, uh, diminish their risk exposure and improve their income streams by adding vegan uh, plant-based sources to their revenue. So for them, that's just good business. But the problem is that, and, and that's why they bought this chain that me and my wife, we love to, uh, to go to. The problem for us now is that, as you mentioned before, for us going to eat in those places, and usually, by the way, when we go there, we call our friends who are non-vegan, for example. So when we meet together, we say, okay, let's go to that place because usually even non-vegans enjoy their time in that place very much. And we have for sure everything that we could possibly want. So everyone wins kind of. But now, and as you mentioned before that, it's been like one way to exert power with our dollars and with the choices that we make. We support that industry, whether for ethical reasons, whether for health reasons and so on. The problem is now when we're doing that, we're spending the money that goes into the hands of the people that we definitely don't want to support and, and help anymore. And so now we ended up with this ethical dilemma and consequently decided we have to look for new places to go to because even though the food is great, the people is great, the menu is great, it's very healthy, etc., we don't want our money to end up eventually in the same places and people who own the cow factories. Yeah, I think you're mentioning something very important here. Um, and here now I'm speaking as a communication expert and a, an expert for media relations and political communication. There um, are when we look at the future scenarios, we also think about other political narratives companies want to play into. And you're just mentioning something like that. If it's, yeah, you call it good business, just to diversify your business. But it's also, I've in, in the last couple of years, I've had so many students in uh, communication who were, were writing about sustainable companies, sustainable communication. And, and now we see a lot is just greenwashing. It's just, yeah. okay, we buy this. This is a, actually an excellent example. We buy this whole company, so we must be good, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and people tend to believe it um i have recently one of uh, my students found out she interviewed the generation c on that and it was very interesting generation c thinks they are very sustainable themselves but they are the ones who, who don't want to change anything they want to change the least like you have the boomers etc they say oh yeah i could change my lifestyle i could go vegan or something like that but they are actually more like others should change it for us let these corporations change it for us and i think it will not work like that i think you mentioned something very important you think of not going to this place anymore and that's the choice you can make that's the we've cost. stopped actually yes so that's you cast your vote. 
And that's actually also what I do when I learn about that. But it became, from a communication uh, perspective, it became very hard because there are narratives that are pushed so hard. And um, what we also see in the scenarios, usually when you have a new form of regulation, it's usually helping the big companies to get rid of the small competition. And this always concerns me. That's why I'm not um, all in when they say, oh, we have a new regulation. You know, in, in Europe, we have all these sustainability goals. Yes, that sounds all great. And I, I support each and every one of these goals. But the way they are enforced will, again, help the big companies like the one you mentioned to buy, to do things like that. It's greenwashing, social washing. We just buy this good company and now we are good. Now we are good in the in the green scores and in the social scores. And it really shouldn't work like that. And for and on the other side, for small companies, it will be very, very hard to actually fulfill these goals. Because it, it's always very complicated. We had the same thing, for example, with GDPR. I know people who were actually involved in developing GDPR. And I know from technological experts like the, from Microsoft in Austria um, that you cannot fulfill GDPR. As soon as you use one cloud service, you can be sued for 20 million euros as a small company. So for us, it's always, we are on walking on this cliff. Am I closing my company? What am I doing now? I know if they want uh, to get to me, they can do it. And for a big company, let's be honest, for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, 20 millions, oh my God, that's It's nothing. a joke. It's a joke. Yeah, yeah, they make that probably in half a day. Um, now, Perhaps we should start talking about futurism here a little bit more specifically. So let's start with, and we kind of started backwards because we were looking at a specific case of China and that's where the first probably half an hour or 45 minutes of our discussion went, which is kind of a useful exercise, but it's good to kind of pull back or zoom out and, and look at it, sort of the, the, the theoretical foundations first, if you will, and then Maybe we can zoom back in and look at other examples. But first of all, what is futurism for you? How do you define it? First of all, um, I would like to say that I do not consider myself a futurist. And uh, when I talked in the beginning with Carl Rosa, he said, actually, you know what? Futurists, uh, futurists um, understand what I am doing the least. And why is that so? Because what I do, it's called um, future scenario thinking or future scenario planning, as mentioned, invented by the US Air Force, then famously adapted by Royal Dutch Shell for business usage. Um, it is actually not about trying to predict the future. And it's also not about calculating the future, because that's also a quite powerless position. For this, uh, I would like to mention another example. I had the great, great opportunity to work with one of the renowned complexity experts who worked for Rand Corporation, John Casti. He lives in Vienna and we did uh, several workshops several years ago. It was, I think, now 10 years ago. And this expert on complexity theory um, actually said in this workshop, and he was in his 70s then, you know what, when I was still young and dumb, so 10 years ago, I still thought 
that we could calculate human behavior. Now that I'm old and wise, I don't think so anymore. And I also don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then he started to write children, children's books. Um, so this really was very interesting to me because how did I come to that? I also thought, oh, complexity theory, that's very interesting. It was because I was working in a lot of really, really complicated political stakeholder processes. At this time, I called it my job description is diving with the sharks. If I'm smart, the sharks will attack each other, the political players. If we are not smart, we will get eaten by the sharks. So this was my daily business. And um, I actually also dreamed of calculating human behavior, because as we see now in the scenarios, it's one of the biggest uncertainties we have as human beings. So I also thought it would be very nice to calculate human behavior. But as John Casti told us, that's actually not possible. And I believe him. I think he's very right about that. So what we do in the scenarios is not some trend projection. And actually, we are outside of quantitative data. We use uh, qualitative things like, for example, human behavior, things we cannot calculate. And that's also, I think, in the history of that whole thing. Um, if you think about um, the US Air Force invented it, what do they usually want to know? They want to know what can or what will the enemy do. And you cannot know that. You cannot calculate it. You cannot predict it. So they came up with this idea to develop various scenarios. And how do they do that? Now I really go into the methodology. You first start with the question you want to answer. So in this case, maybe as a company, you say, what, can, what will my competitor do? What will be the competitive behavior, for example? It's really something also economists would like to know, but you, you, cannot, you cannot predict that. So, and then you, in a team, usually a team of a lot of different perspectives. That's always important. If a company asks me, how uh, would you um, choose the people for the team? I always say it should be people who like to discuss and people who have a lot of different perspectives. When we do huge um, stakeholder processes for governmental organizations, uh, we actually invite people as different as, as AI experts, sociologists, artists, architects, physicists, all kind of people and usually also very young people um, to, because, you know, we are talking about the future. You should invite the next generation to talk about that. So then we start to gather driving forces for the specific question. Usually you gather that on post-its when we can do it in real. Of course, now in the pandemic, we had to do it a lot online. That's also possible. And then in the next step, this very analytical step, but very... Um, very helpful. It's called an impact uncertainty map. So you take this driving force and you ask yourself the question, how important is that for my question? And the next thing is, is the outcome or is the development of this driving force, is that already fixed or can it still be changed? So the uncertainty of the development. And with that, then actually you have two sides. On the one side, you have more these certain trends, which are usually more things you can calculate. Usually something like demography is on that side. That's something that very trends and trends analysis is very useful for that kind of stuff. I, I also, we also use it. But our 
Space is the realm of uncertainty. We then work with the uncertainties on the other side um, because that's something you still can change. If you want to shape the future instead of pre predict, sorry, if you want to change the future instead of predicting it, um, it's good to work with these uncertainties. I, I tend to call that actually the gift of uncertainty because for entrepreneurs, for politicians, for people, this is the place where you can create. But of course, on the other side, I know that people hate uncertainty because it can make them anxious. <laughs> <laughs> it can make them uncertain about themselves. And um, that's why they actually sometimes uh, before the pandemic, it was not so easy to sell this whole process because usually risk managers, they say, give me, give me some probabilities and then I can feel safe. But now we have seen all these probabilities actually do not give you safety. You just think they give you safety. So actually everything is uncertain. I do not believe it. it is so much more uncertain than it was before now. Uh, but we actually, we really should um, start to deal with uncertainty instead of um, suppressing, rejecting and denying it. And that's actually what we do. Yeah, I forget. It was one of the greatest psychologists of the 20th century, I think, who said that Life is change yearning for certainty. Yes. Who was so that? That's perfect. <laughs> I forget his name. I, I have it somewhere in a keynote I did. But uh, it's basically all about this kind of paradoxical push and pull between on the one hand that we're always living in the context of ever-present change. At any moment of our history, yes. everything is changing all the time. Yes. Always been the case is the case and will always be the case. On the other hand, we're always striving to keep things the same mm. at one level or another subconsciously. We're always having this kind of nesting instinct. Mm. You, we always, you know, are striving to, you know, opposing this change or that trend or this, let's keep it the same, let's keep it the same. And, and so this is where it kind of life happens and who we are, according to this expert anyway, at the crux between those two trends, you know, and 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 that's who we are. This kind of brings me perhaps to since we're talking about defining our terms here, terms here before we kind of can go any further. You mentioned in the beginning that you're a person, you mentioned two things. One was about uncertainty, but the other was that you're someone who helps one human connect to other humans. Um, what is human for you? How do you define human? Hmm, interesting question. I actually never thought about that. So let me just think about what is human to me. I think it actually for me, it is defined by this desire to connect to others a little bit. Of course, I would say I am, I'm a human who is in this physical body so for me you have like we have you know the human mind we have our emotions and we have our body and everything is connected to each other and I think all of these uh, parts are important I wouldn't deny any of it like uh, you know people who just think okay maybe I just go on a mountain and meditate for the rest of my life for me that's maybe not um, the 
what we, we intend to do with this human life. I see human life more something like, okay, I came here to ride the roller coaster. It will go up and will go down. And uh, I think it would not actually be fulfilling the purpose if we would say, oh, I don't ride the roller coaster. I just take myself out. And also when we come back to technology, I do not think that things like just live in the metaverse and forget about your physical body would be very conducive to the human being. Because one of our biggest needs is actually human connection. And it's also one of, of our biggest uncertainties. In almost all our scenarios, we see as one certain trend among the, the motivations of humans is actually existential angst. And what are we so anxious about? It's actually this, do other humans like me? Do they want to connect to me? And for us, that's actually, it's not a trivial question. It's a question of life and death. Because in uh, when we still were living in tribes and hunting and gathering, Uh, to be uh, not a part of the group actually would mean you would die. And yeah. um, and our psychology and our emotions and the, the actually does not evolve very quickly. So we still have the same reaction as we had millions of years ago. So when someone rejects us, um, I always find it very, very interesting. Like, you know, there are books like The Art of Not Giving a Fuck. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. We care about others and we care about the connection to others. So, yes, we as humans, I think uh, one of our biggest advantage is this connection and collaboration. That's actually how we made it so far. Yeah, very interesting. Um, wondering which way we should go here because there's so many interesting points that I want to investigate. You know, In support of what you just said, it's dawning on a lot of people that, let's say, during the COVID pandemic of the last couple of years, we have been more connected, whether virtually, whether to the metaverse, whether in any other way, technologically speaking, than ever before in the history of our civilization. And yet, on the other hand, we are more depressed more suicidal, mm. more lonely than we've ever been. Yes. Uh, and you can see that in the kind of global epidemic of depression, of, you mm. know, anti-depression drugs, prescription drugs. I don't know how it is in Vienna or in Austria, but in North America, it's an epidemic. And you have kids as early as seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids being given prescription very strong prescription yeah. antidepressant drugs. Mm. And those are drugs that you don't give them once. You kind of, once you start getting those and you get hooked up on them, you in most cases end up using them for decades, probably for the rest of your mm. life even. Uh, and there's been an epidemic of that. So I think many people have noticed that despite the explosion of technology, We're not happier, we're not less depressed, and we're not less suicidal, but quite the opposite. In fact, um, I am doing a keynote in uh, British Columbia in about three weeks from now, and it's an old client who had to reschedule their event uh, two times because of pandemic restrictions and stuff, but they're an association, a business association, and 
they took a vote with their members about the event because I asked him, is it going to be a hybrid event? Is it live event? And he said, live event, period. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you don't think it's kind of smart to uh, have a backup version as a hybrid? And he said, well, our members voted and they were very clear. We're either going to have a live event where we meet each other face to face or we're not, or we'd rather not have an event at all. (laughs) And so the downside of that is that they had to reschedule their event twice. So there Mm -hmm. is a price to be paid for that. Mm -hmm. But the upside is, and, and what people I think are seeking more and more nowadays is that connection that you're talking about and not, not virtually speaking, uh, even though you could also make, on the other hand, a very powerful argument um, about the case that perhaps when you're lacking the physical connection, you may find some degree of replacement of it or another with a virtual one. And I've seen uh, come uh, a lot of kind of those online gaming communities come to my mind where, you know, you have these people who kind of, let's say, have a pretty maybe boring lives in reality. And yet online in those virtual gaming communities, they are heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have status, they have a purpose, and they have community, Mm -hmm. which are all Mm -hmm. kind of lacking in their job in their personal life, in their physical life. So in personally speaking, they don't have a purpose or a community or status. And they don't have a story which is used to kind of wrap all these together. And yet, when they become, you know, big names in war, Warcraft or something like that, they gain status, they gain purpose, they gain meaning, and they gain a community too. So in some ways, they're that purpose could be served to some degree or another. Um, yeah, what, what do you think about these two? And I kind of came up with this, these two kind of off the top of my head now, but it's kind of these two trends clashing mm. and kind yes. of giving us inconsistent or contradictory direction, perhaps. Yes. Um, I think it's also a phenomenon that uh, at the university, a lot of students actually did, did not want to go back to to real classes because, you know, it's so comfortable. And that's also, really? yeah, something, um, It's I think, all across the world. It's not just uh, like here. Wow. It's just, I'm just thinking for me, I mm. always loved going to class. It was mm. my best, my favorite yeah. thing to do when yes. I was in university and I would always sit on the first row and I never took any notes, but I'd be like this. Really like, present. Yes. For me like, as well. I'm present. Yeah. I, I love to be present. What you mentioned about the games, I think it's kind of dangerous to be honest, because uh, what you're describing is usually, yeah, if these are kids, you know, kids play a lot of a uh, game of pretend but there is a stage in life when you actually should get over playing pretend. And usually it's also a sign that your childhood is not very happy because you want to escape from it. And and uh, that's for most of us. When we come back to powerlessness, childhood is a very powerless state, actually. You have people who govern you and you just can hope that they, they are treating you well. But um, that's usually children play 
a game of pretend. If you are an adult and you keep playing pretend, keep playing pretend, that actually can grow into a pathology. So I think it's very dangerous. I totally understand the need to have this connection. And I think it's kind of a safe connection. Um, maybe as a side note, I'm also evaluating uh, human-machine interaction projects for the European Commission, a lot of robotics, a lot of AI. And um, I usually like to look at the team and I kind of have the impression that very often these people who wanted to create, who really want to create new humans, their own humans, I think they have been hurt so much by humans that they now say, I create my own humans and I can control them. They will not hurt me. And that might also be the case for the gaming. And I would caution people. I think I heard examples um, of gaming communities who then actually met in reality. I think that's a good thing. You can always use these things as a they nice They have a substitute. World Cup which fills yes. stadiums yes. in Korea <laughs> and, and in other places, in yes. Las Vegas. Mm. Tens of thousands of people go to the World Cup, to the finals, where yes. two teams are duking it at each other. And, and you know, it's it's like the biggest event. We're talking teams who the, the purse is like tens of millions of dollars or $10 million or something like that mm. for the winning team sponsorship deals worth of millions of dollars and stuff like that. Tens of thousands of screen, screaming fans in, in the stadium mm. watching the game being live. Played out, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, it's kind of a slippy slope, slippery slope to do that. And uh, I would not uh, teach people to uh, go more into that. I think it, it's better to have less of it and to, to have real meetings as well. Of course, uh, like you mentioned, meeting technology, we are using that in international projects since many, many years. And of course, it's very useful, but even uh, I used to work in like huge um, EU projects with 12, 18 member states and that kind of stuff. Of course, it would be very hard to have uh, every week a meeting with all of these member states. So Skype and, um, and you name it um, were very, very useful. But at least once a year, there usually was a big gathering of all the project partners because you really, really needed that. And what you mentioned with the um, uh, event, who is just in life and not hybrid, we did that as well. And it, people were so hungry uh, right after... Um, I just want to say right after the pandemic, but it's a bit hard to say that. Um, when it was possible again, we did one huge conference... Uh, and we invited, it was like 40 speakers, we invited them to be really um, at the location and the audience uh, would uh, could follow via stream because more than that was not possible then. Even the people there, they didn't even want to go home. We only had a little room for the speakers, like three sofas or something like that. They were sitting there, they were discussing. Uh, one told me, oh, do you know what? I, I meet my colleague here for the first time in one year. I didn't meet my colleague until you invited us here and we could uh, we were able to discuss. So you see that people really, really suck that up. 
if you give them connection again. And for the people who are so afraid of human connection, I totally validate that. I would like to say that. I'm not judging on that. But I think it's also, um, as a society, it's kind of sad that you have so many people who'd rather pre live in a pretended world than to, to meet in, in reality. Well, it's not, you know, missed perhaps on many of us that some of those people like Mark Zuckerberg, who created the so-called, quote, social network, were kind of very asocial, physically speaking, in their own personal life as a human physical being, mm -hmm. right? So they supposedly are caring so much about social and this and that and creating the social network, but yet in their lives, they're, you know, isolated, lonely people quite often mm. who are anything but social, who don't exactly. know the first thing about being social, quite honestly, and have kind of a social awkwardness, if you will, to one degree or another, being in the physical presence of, of other people. Yes. And Mark Zuckerberg is probably the best example, example. of that. Um, yes, and I think I'm much more afraid of people who are uh, acting like robots than robots acting like people. And I think Mark Zuckerberg is also a very good example of that one. I mean, look at him. <laughs> it's more like data. <laughs> so uh, I totally agree. And uh, you mentioned the loneliness epidemic. And I think that already was um, a problem long ago, before the whole pandemic hit. Uh, sure. As far as I remember, um, in Great Britain, they nominated a loneliness minister already in 2018 because the problems caused, caused by loneliness have become so obvious and so bad that it was actually necessary. And uh, yeah, we, we are a lot of people. Just imagine 7.6 billion people on this planet and most of them are feeling lonely. That brings me back to my core value of human connection. How, how can we work on that? And um, also for the use of technology. As I, as I said, I'm a tech enthusiast and I like to see technology used in a good way. And of course, during the pandemic, it was, was very good to have things like WhatsApp to communicate with people all over the world, you know. And I would not have wanted to miss that. But I think you always should use it in a, in a good way. And um, as we already mentioned, university, we had to, to teach our university students uh, digitally via Zoom. And always it was very awkward because you're talking theoretically, you have a wall in front of you of 40 people and you, you're talking to them like four hours and then you close your laptop and there's nobody there. So I always had this very, very awkward feeling. And recently I listened to a psychologist and he, he cited another psychologist. I still didn't find out the quote actually, but the phenomenon is very interesting. He said that, I, I guess, you know, the mirror effect. Then when you talk to someone, you mirror their mimic, their chest, gestures, and uh, that's how we connect, right? And he said, but our body actually goes much further the body actually really with all our hormones starts to connect to the other body so when we are now in a virtual setting our brain says there's another human being then you have all the hormones and the emotions and our body tries to connect to this other human being but 
this human being is not there in a physical way. So actually, we really get rebounced by the screen in kind of how I imagine that. And um, we exhaust ourselves. The body exhausts itself. And so I think that for me, there was a very good explanation to the way I felt after a day of Zoom meetings. It's really, really exhausting. And if that is the case, we really have to rethink the usage of technology in the circumstances. Yeah, Zoom fatigue, I think it's called now here. Oh, there's already a term. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's in, in North America, we call it Zoom fatigue. Hmm. But, you know, I can associate with that during the pandemic, I was forced to do virtual keynotes. Hmm. And, you know, it's the most kind of disappointing and unsatisfying feeling. Even if I feel like I've done my best and I've done a mm. good job, mm. usually if I'm at a physical event, I end up in a high. Mm. Uh, yes. You know, after you speak, people come talk to you, you mm. talk to them, maybe I do a book signing or whatever, but I meet new people, I'm exposed to new ideas, I learn, I socialize, I end up on a high. When I'm at home, you know, and then it's like basically you turn off your platform, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever the client wants. It's so empty and unsatisfying exactly, and kind of alienating yeah. in a way that, that it's really, and not to mention, I am wiped out afterwards. I'm literally yes. wiped out. I can... The only thing I can do afterwards is like sit down on a couch and watch some stupid action movie mm. and veg for the rest of the day because I have nothing else left to give. Absolutely. I can I can totally relate. I try, if it's still possible, if it's not too late at night, I try to go outside in nature to to have the plants and, and to yeah, ground Yeah, I go myself. bike riding. Yeah, yeah, I do that too. <laughs> I go bike riding. That's like one of the best things that I've found out. Bike riding or swimming mm. are the mm. best things I can do right after that because kind of disengage my mind, but yeah. make me work in a way and, and kind of unload, if you will. So those are the, the activities that I found to be the most useful right after it. And then I'm really dead and I have to like veg and watch a stupid action. So, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that too, because in the beginning I thought there's something wrong with me. Like, why, why am I that exhausted? And uh, as you say, usually as if you have like a whole bunch of people, you are in a high. And that's actually also what I love about that. That's what I love about doing keynotes on stage. That's what I love about teaching. Uh, that's actually why I am teaching because I, I like this connection and the presence of the students. And with uh, just uh, in this way, it's really, really not the same. Wow, Ursula, uh, let me see if I can refocus our conversation a little bit again here on, and I, you tell me if that's a good question or not, but you're not a futurist in a way you do future scenarios let's say i'm a client from the united nations general assembly or something like that or the head of the united nations and i come to you and i say ursula what are the biggest dangers to humanity that we should kind of monitor or kind of keep an eye on what could be 
those things that could lead to our extinction, perhaps. What would you say? I would say let's do a scenario process together and invite as many people as possible to find it out. Wow. And I actually, I had a request from OECD to, um, to invent some teaching program for this kind of stuff. Wow. Wow. So it's, it's a lot more interactive and, and you kind of let them generate yes. the... I think that's also why I do not like to call myself a futurist, uh, because it's very often a bit like uh, guruism, if we can call it like that. And sure, I, yeah. And I don't think uh, that this is what we need now. Of course, um, in in times of big uncertainty, there are people calling for a leader or something like that. And especially in Austria and Germany, we know that that is not the way to to a good future so we we have some we have some experience with that i hope if anyone would have learned that lesson that would be you guys exactly so i i really don't want to hear that and i actually with this process is i would call it the gift of uncertainty uh your ticket to an empowered life because when you find out what are your motivations, what are your core values, and that's actually what the process is all about, then you have something like a beacon of light, which can guide you through any crisis. If you know these are my core principles and I will not go beyond that or b below that, um, you actually know how to cast your vote on, on any decision. Yeah, but you mentioned that community kind of feeling or sort of genealogy, if you will, that we all have. Hmm. Uh, and a bad name of it or a bad dimension of, of it would would be called something like the herd mentality yes. or the, the or yes. the, the crowd mentality. Hmm. And is a way of avoiding that kind of question that you just posed, like what are my core values mm -hmm. and going the easier route, which is, oh, why can't I just find a strong individual who has strong core values or at least acts as if they do. Mm -hmm. And then I just follow what they say and I do what they do. And this way I fight uncertainty with the certainty of the great leader. Absolutely. And now you gave me this argument about how aware you are in, about how problematic this is, historically speaking, in Germany and in Austria. But unfortunately, it seems that people in Russia, people in much of rest of Europe, you name it, Hungary, Poland, uh, you know, there's so many places, the Philippines, obviously, the United States, England to a great degree in the last few years, all over the world there is this rise of demand, if you will, for precisely uh, Bolsonaro is another great example in Brazil, I think. There is this public demand, and in the face of such a demand, there are people who have stood up to supply uh, that kind of populist leadership in response to that demand. So... So, and, and you're saying about kind of creating or, or uh, designing the future that 
would be desirable for us, but how do we do that in this kind of context? That's a very good question, and we actually do it by going in these worst-case scenarios. Why do we do that? That's a psychological reason. Um, usually, um, I, I, I describe this critical uncertainties, right? We had this um, um, impact uncertainty map, and we, we mapped certain trends and critical uncertainties on the other hand. We then take two of these critical uncertainties to form uh, an axis, like a cross. And um, then from that, you have four different scenarios. And usually it's one that's really a good one, like Tomorrowland, a good, good one. And <laughs> three are usually not that good because they usually describe exactly the pendulum you just described. Like, do we have too much of conformity and we just follow everyone else? And do we need a leader? Or, um, or in this case, it's not it's even the masses leading that. So it's more like um, totalitarianism. Or are we calling for the godfather or a dictator, what you were just describing, just we tend to want a dictatorship to, to answer our uncertainty or our anxiety. Or do we want to go to the other side of the pendulum swing and say, I value my personal freedom over everything. I just want to be an individual and uh, there is no connection to other human beings. I am an island for myself. So usually you have these uh, negative scenarios and then we put ourselves into these scenarios like method actors. Uh, usually I really ask the people, imagine 2040 and we really go far into the future because usually people, if you say one year in the future, they already know what's going to happen. So it's not because we think we can predict the future until 2040, 2050 or something like that. It's just to enable this out of the box thinking. And then we go through these really bad scenarios and then the human mind is very creative. If you start with the Tomorrowland scenario where everything is good and uh, you have the individuals as well as the, as the connection to other people, this is a utopia usually and people the the creative mind is not very active when you just present them a utopia when i ask people then how do we get to this utopia they usually look at me with question marks in their eyes but then it's very easy go to these bad scenarios you see okay we do not want this and we do not want technology to control us and we do not want these leaders to control us but we also do not want to be so egoistic and then you all of a sudden, by realizing the black, you can think of the white. So actually, we create these desirable um, futures by looking into the bad scenarios. Wow. And but you going back to those scenarios, though, you said you you ask people to to have a sort of a very diverse team so mm -hmm. that they can generate that that spectrum of possibilities. But Let's say they miss some major point or or what if they don't see some major things like, let's say, again, going back to the UN example and the future of humanity and the greatest dangers, let's say people are kind of clueless or thinking small time or something. Hmm. That Wouldn't you have to step up at some point and supply some yes. scenarios or it's the major things that you think would make a difference? Uh, yes, I think that's in the phase where we're gathering the driving forces. Driving forces are in 
factors which uh, have the possibility to make a real change now or in the future. And if I really see in the group there are some things missing, of course, I would bring these things into the equation. Um, we have three really uh, interesting questions. They seem kind of trite if you ask them but it really really it it helps a lot to find these core motivations and the important factors out and um, that is the first question is if you could look into the future of this topic what would you like to know the second is if the future unfolded according to your wishes realistically but optimistically what would that look like and if the future unfolded in the wrong direction, what would you be worried about? And um, actually, this is, we also, sometimes we just do that in a panel discussion with experts. And it's very interesting because by these questions, you kind of subconsciously find out these driving forces. And of course, if there would be something missing, the, the whole process is quite flexible. If like after one session, you see, mm, maybe there are some driving forces missing. You can go back to literature, you can do uh, desk research, bring it in, discuss it the next time. Even, as I said, we form the scenario cross, you can change that during the process. It's really very flexible. You can um, have other experts have a look at it and tell you, do you think that makes sense? What we also like to do is that when we have the scenarios, we do persona workshops where you have different kind of people really um, challenging these scenarios for real life and you still you will always adapt and you can always change it and yes uh, sometimes if if actually if we have a group of really let's say smart connected people from a lot of different backgrounds you can really really find out everything you want to know that's what I love about human imagination. That's really, really interesting. And it's sometimes it's really kind of predicting the future when you look at look back at it several years later. But it also once it happened to me that the team actually did not come up with all the driving forces we needed. And then after that, we looked at that and uh, we discussed it. And actually, we were adding driving forces, of course, with good arguments why we would uh, add it and uh, then uh, to enrich the scenarios and make them better. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Let me ask you this a little bit of a side question here again, perhaps about women in sort of foresight futurism or future scenario planning you know obviously there's there's been more women than before nowadays i think mm. but it's still kind of a rarity isn't it that you have women it's usually guys it's usually mm. white guys mm. um <laughs> that's right and they're, they're usually kind of either tech background or I would say military background. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Um, what do you think of that? And, and what's the value of kind of breaking or changing this paradigm, if, if any, by bringing in more women? And how do you feel like what's, what's your experience? You've been now in this for over a decade. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience as a woman doing what you do? That's actually a very good point because I also started to do that with Karl Rose, who is a tall, white male. Mm -hmm. And um, 
everything in strategy actually is really not so easy to do for women. And for a very long time, we also had this um, guru aspect. And uh, as uh, you, as I mentioned, a lot of the futurists, they try to really uh, present themselves as if they would know the future. That's something I would never do. And maybe that's also a bit of the female touch but as i mentioned Karl rose himself also never did that it was never about uh, predicting the future because as i said for me that's actually a very powerless um, powerless um, attitude uh, i do not want to predict the future i want to believe in the fact that we can shape the future that's much more fun in my perspective um, and uh, but of course it's not that easy as a woman of course i have men in my team and i am a very pragmatic person i'm also a, a technology consultant of over 20 years so i have this double effect like woman in technology woman in um, futurism if you we want to call it like that or a woman in strategy i think woman in strategy is even even more difficult than a woman in tech because uh, tech yeah you know we already have this women in tech but women in strategy almost no one i mean come on now women are so emotional they could never do strategy really yeah yeah <laughs> as Don't i mentioned <laughs> yeah maybe that's my um that's my advantage i actually i grew up with a um with three brothers i I know that on psychological tests, I have a lot of um, male attributes. So maybe that's kind of an advantage. Um, but on the other side, uh, I like to play it pragmatically. If you have a big organization who cannot deal with you as a woman alone, I would just, a man, I will take a man with me. I'm really not, I'm not like, uh, um, I don't make that mean anything. I'm very pragmatic. I know sometimes in also in negotiations, it's better when I do the negotiation or sometimes better when my business partner does the negotiation. Um, and it's just a fact. That's just how the world is. So it's not for me, it's not, I don't take that personally. It's just how it works. And I'm always uh, ready uh, willing to make it work. So for me, it's actually, it's not a problem. Of course, if someone tells me, oh, we cannot do it with you because you do not have like a 56 year old male expert with you. Of course, it's kind of a pity. And I do not rely on that anymore. And I, of course, I will think about if I want to take on the client. Perhaps this is the moment where we should bring the importance of storytelling. And hmm. because in a way, you know, we are all working within a story in our head and say, let's say one story could be, oh, women suck at strategy. It has to be a 56-year-old white guy who's got to be the guru of mm. strategy. Mm -hmm. And if you don't got that in the room, then we can't connect with you. We can't really buy or even hear what you're here to tell us because... You just don't fit our story. And it's good on you that you kind of get that and you try to not, one, take it personally, and mm -hmm. second, bring the character along that could play within those people or that person's story mm -hmm. 
so that you can make that connection indirectly if you can't do it correctly and kind of have a successful negotiation or what have you. But perhaps this will be a good point to talk about what is story and how is it important whether for, you know, future scenarios, whether for our core values or whether for anything that requires more than one people, that's to say two and more people coming together to work on a project together. Hmm. Um, where does it all come to play? For me, uh, it actually came to play with the whole scenario process. Um, I also I have a major in communication and public relations, and uh, I always tried to help technologists um, I helped, I translated uh, what they were saying to regular people, to the media, to politics. And actually, I was quite good in that. So, I, of course, I didn't want to give up on that. But I really wanted to get into this highly strategic process as well. And the good thing about scenario thinking is that you think in stories. So that really came to my advantage. And we are continuously developing more possibilities also the next will be like to create hybrid semi-somatic spaces to really live in the scenarios and that kind of stuff we are working on something with the Australian Institute of Technology they are very interested in that as well and it's all about the human imagination and it's all about how you tell the stories I think there is um, a guiding book by Peter Schwartz who was in the founding members of the scenario team at Shell and he describes that it's our human nature to think in stories and that's why the scenario scenarios worked so well. Um, there was another story uh, I was told directly by the Shell guys. Um, they told me, yes, these, these narratives work very well. I know that from my own scenarios, but I will bring the example from Shell now. They had... Um, it's always you have like really um, interesting names like you, uh, for the scenarios. Like I mentioned, Tomorrowland is a film title, Godfather, Wolf of Wall Street, and you name it. Um, you can also name it by cars and it, just something that the human mind, uh, the human imagination starts to work. And um, at Shell, for example, they had this one scenario. It was called the Humpty Dumpty scenario. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Humpty Dumpty story, but the Humpty Dumpty no. walks on the on the wall and he falls down. It's it's an egg, and the egg breaks. The shell is broken, and uh, in so many pieces that you cannot put it together again. And this at Shell was the scenario that when they would um, while they were negotiating with their Arab or, I, yeah, I think with the Arab partners, they were very well aware if they would do a certain step, this would be a Humpty Dumpty scenario. They would ruin their relationships with their partners forever. The Humpty Dumpty would fall off the wall, it would be broken in a thousand pieces, and you can never mend that again. And actually the the CEO of Shell International mentioned that all the time. People then live in this scenario. He always said like, no, 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 if we are doing that, this will be the Humpty Dumpty scenario. And everyone knew what he meant. So this is very, very successful in creating narratives for your company. People know it. It's just a picture and the picture revives the whole story. 
Yeah, and I would say personally too, uh, also, because companies are consisting of people. Uh, so it is us who get captured by and move by the stories that we tell. But what if we want to change the story? Or what if our story, or let's say your story of being who you are and doing what you do, doesn't fit within the other person on the table story? Hmm. Uh could be because, as you said, they have the story of the 56-year-old male who should be sitting across from them and not, you know, uh, a, a not very tall young woman. Uh, you know, they would rather have the, the person that you described, perhaps a very tall white guy who is mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of at the peak of his career, probably, you know, late 50s, early 60s, somewhere thereabout with, you know, decades of experience and kind of the the aura of the guru uh, in the Western kind of cultural sense. Um, so how do you change their story? Because, you know, one way you said already is like, well, I could decide not to work with them, but sometimes we don't have that luxury. Sometimes we have to, we have to make it work. What do we do then? Well, one thing we also teach with the scenarios is not to exhaust yourself by trying to change things you cannot change. You usually cannot change the narrative or the story of another person. You will not go in there and change it immediately. Of course, you can impress them, but if they have this kind of attitude, you maybe you're just not a good fit. You will find another one. What you can change is actually uh, your own story. As I worked for Austria's biggest PR and lobbying agency, we did a lot of personal positioning, as we called it. It's kind of personal branding, like for CEOs of big tech companies, for politicians, you create their stories. And I'm actually, um, I tested that on myself, how quickly it would work. How quickly can you position yourself in a field? Um, and uh, I tried that with a specific technological field and I actually was shocked. Within two years, I could have positioned myself as an expert in this field by only talking to experts in this field and uh, talking at conferences, at panel sessions and um, the like. And then uh, you get invited to the next conference, to get invited to the next talk, and then you are an expert in a field I never was an expert in. And I have really good friends who are experts in that, so I, I kind of stopped this experiment because I, I, I know I'm not an expert in this field and I do not want to position myself as an expert in this field, but that's how easy you can change your narrative. Yeah, I'm currently writing a book. I've been writing it for a couple of years on and off, and it's called Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future. Hmm. And it's all about rewriting it. You absolutely can rewrite it, and then uh, the communication expertise comes in is how good can you communicate that and uh, what story do you tell but you can change the story a lot but that's on the other side um, I think that's good for for the human being and it's also good to know 
that actually our personalities <laughs> are not so much set in stone as people usually think. It's really mendable. And usually um, the things we think are our personality um, are the things that made us cope the best with the, or the powerlessness in childhood. As I mentioned, childhood is for everyone quite a powerless situation. And even if you have the most loving parents, I do not want to, uh, <laughs> to say that every parent is a bad parent, but it's just a fact. As a as human child, we cannot do a lot. We are very helpless, and that makes us very powerless. It's just this fact, this simple fact. So uh, our personalities are actually the coping mechanisms that made us cope the best, that protected us the best. So dive deep into it, find find out what it was, and is it really you? That's actually a process I started with my own business when I, when I founded my own business, because I think as an entrepreneur, you have to face everything and to find out, is that my purpose or is it not? Is it a coping mechanism? So I, I actually started to dive deep into it and also use the scenario process for that. Yeah, and I remember watching you say somewhere that you developed the leadership skills when you were three years old and your brother was born and you had to protect him or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, and how, you know, that then we're like three years old, we come up with a story and then it has implications for our lives for the rest of our lives. Yes. Um, whether positive or negative, it doesn't matter, but it's always kind of generated by a story that we tell ourselves and it doesn't matter if it's a true story or a false story. Exactly. As long as we believe it, exactly. it literally is running our lives one way or another, either as a, as a magnet mm. pu pulling us in mm. or pushing us away. Uh, but powerful, you know, whatever the case may be very, very powerful. I absolutely agree. Yes. Um, Ursula, we've been, we're approaching two hours now. So, and I'm really enjoying our conversation, but unfortunately, so we're going to have to uh, bring it to an end. Uh, what's the best place for people to follow your work to find can, out more about your, what you're up to and so on? You can find me on my website. It's www.redswan.at. Um, also on LinkedIn, Ursula Ezin, my name. And I recently started a Substack. It's called CodeRed by Redswan.substack.com, where uh, you may get my columns, my monthly columns, into your inbox right away for free if you'd like so. Excellent. Okay. Well, perhaps I should have asked you a little more about AI, I'm thinking now here, because you're kind of like a foresight specialist or futurist scenario planner, where on your timeline map of the future, and I know you said you don't do that, but I'm going to ask you anyway, hmm. do you put or do you put powerful artificial intelligence somewhere along the map of, let's say, that client from the United Nations who came to you to talk to you about whether humanity's you know, existential threats or anything else. Where on, on that map of timeline of future possibilities do you put AI? Actually, we develop future scenarios for the Austrian Ministry of Technology 
on the it started with the topic responsible AI and then it uh, went into a, a more broader topic which was called next generation internet the internet for people 2040 and of course among the technological drivers also was uh, AI um, besides things like um, nanotechnology bio nanotechnology um, but the very interesting thing actually is usually that the technology, the technological drivers are usually not um, uncertainties. It's more like certainties. And for AI, uh, I have a lot of friends who really are researchers in AI for 20, 30 years, and they do not think that the singularity is even a topic they are interested in. Usually they say, okay, the certainty is now we have things like machine learning, we can use it to do data analysis. Some of it is actually not more than statistics, let's be honest. And um, well, what we do usually also for future projections, we try to predict the future by using data from yesterday. And that's actually not very promising. Uh, so I do not really see it in that field. It's not really a big advantage. We tried that as well, but it's not. It's far better to look at things you cannot calculate because um, think, for example, when Uber was attacking uh, the taxi business or uh, Airbnb, the hotel business, that's not something you can calculate. That's a human behavior. That's an uncertainty. So the technology actually usually does not land in the uncertainties. For the year 2040, actually, the experts among uh, the other experts in this um, scenario process said it might be until 2040. Um, but there's actually not an agreement between the experts. Some of them actually say it's so far away that it's it's. First of, uh, first of all, we are not even working on that. And these were really people who work at Microsoft or these kind of companies. Um, we are not working on that. And it's also not, not interesting to us. So we, we do not want to do it. So actually, sometimes they ask, isn't it more fear-mongering than actually happening? I do not say it cannot happen, but um, we have this problem also um, when we define singularity as the point where a machine can do everything um, a human can do, but better, we are really, really far, far away from that. From the physical perspective, for example, if you take robots, they have, uh, what do we have? We have mowing robots, that's kind, that works. We have vacuum cleaning robots, that works. But um, there was an experiment, I think, in Berkeley. They wanted the robot to fold your laundry. Impossible. Impossible. Something that's very easy for human beings. We are really far, far away. And then uh, the other thing is you might know about the Human Brain Project in Europe, funded with a lot, a lot of money and a lot of experts. Henry Macrum. Yeah. And, but a lot of experts actually criticize that a lot because they say this is all founded on very shaky foundations because we do not know enough about human intelligence. How, how do we want to rebuild it? We do, and then you have the next um, discussion is not only the intelligence, it's also emotional, like uh, the recent uh, Google leak, we now have a sentient chatbot. When you talk to <laughs> AI experts, it's like, do they laugh so much? 
It's really like, okay, come on. We do not even know what human emotions are. What are you talking about? So uh, I think there are contradicting uh, views. Usually what I hear from the experts, a lot of it doesn't work. I mean, talk to an AI expert of 30 years and ask him if he wants to have AI in his car. They usually say, no, I, I, I would like to live some more years. So they are very, very skeptical about AI, even in something like um, autonomous cars. So, um, yeah, I think some experts tell me, yeah, they want to see that. And what I'm always asking is, um, why would you want to have it? Do we want to have it? This, this is what I think is there's a choice to make. Technology is not God-given. It's not like, oh, it just will happen. And um, as I looked into the whole AI topic, also from the perspective of narrative, I think there's a lot of narration going on there as well, and also a lot of fear-mongering. I guess you know the headlines, robots will steal our jobs. I'm working with a... Um, an expert, a professor in robotics at the halfway into the pandemic, he asked the question also to his um, colleagues, where have the robots been during the crisis? You tell us robots are, are stealing our jobs yesterday already, and now we have a crisis where we actually would have needed them. Where are they? And he actually said, well, we have mowing robots, we have vacuum cleaners, but that's about it. So I do not see that anytime near. Yeah. Uh, people in Silicon Valley often say it's kind of inevitable. Elon Musk thinks it's a danger that's mm. more dangerous than nukes. Ray Kurzweil says that it's inevitable and that one that singularity is inevitable. He's given a very specific timeline. Yeah, and I would ask, what is his motivation to say so? That That's always what interests me as I know very much how you how you push narratives how you push political narratives how you push personal narratives you always have to ask for the motivation great um, you know one one thing I in agreement of what you were saying for for that time I was thinking one thing I sometimes say in my in some of my keynotes uh, is that because you said tech, uh, basically that the future and the technology is not God-given. Um, and what I say sometimes is that, you know, technology may lead us to our salvation or technology may lead us to our destruction, but it's not going to be the reason why we end up there. Mm, exactly. So, so it's, it's kind of the the car or the tool that may drive us there, but it's not going to be why we end up yes. there. Yes. It's going to be either we're asleep on the wheel or we're not considering our direction. We're not looking at the map and mm -hmm. we're kind of like driving haphazardly and randomly and sort of like without any clue or idea where we want to get to and what we want to do when we get there. Uh, and there's a price to be paid for that or if we are being deliberate and consistent about what we want to accomplish and where we want to go, then we can also do that. Yes. Uh, and so either case, technology could enable whatever it is that we're doing and enhance it 
and enlarge it and empower it, but it's not really going to be the reason about why we end up self-destroying or sort of thriving. Yes. Yes, I recently had the great opportunity to to do a bot podcast on human digitalism. Is it called that? Yeah. Human? No, sorry. Digital humanism with a renowned expert, uh, a professor, Barclay professor. He's called Edward Lee. He wrote several books on that. And he actually, he also mentioned that he, he does not think that human annihilation will come from some silicon AI army. Uh, but we as humans, he actually also mentions the, these kinds of existential angst and um, this uncertainty and lack of human connection that might lead to our demise. And chances are it would be a self-destruction more, more likely than anything else. As, as far as I'm concerned, because we are the terminators who are killing endless species on our planet. We are the enemy. We are the most dangerous species that ever have been on the planet, historically speaking. Uh, Yuval Harari calls us uh, mass killers because when we show up in a certain historical age, then there's a bunch of extinctions that start happening with other species disappearing. And we are still the most powerful species on the planet. We are in charge of the nuclear weapons. We have the buttons. So if anything were to go wrong, and if anyone is to be the enemy, it's not going to be, I think, aliens from space or uh, AIs jumping off from the screens of our computers, but it would be a Putin or a Trump or or some idiot like that who is a very, also very human kind of a phenomenon <laughs> <laughs> well i think and uh, that's maybe also the the solution to to that uh usually when you have um, dictatorships coming up or, or totalitarianism things like loneliness and alienation are already there in the population uh it it, it really doesn't matter who steps up to be the leader then um so i'm not so much concerned about um individuals who are crazy psychopaths and want to, uh, want to lead um, humanity to demise or something like that. I'm more concerned about this disconnection among humans. And that's also why I do what I do. I would like to connect people to each other. Um, what I am in favor of, I call it human relationship-based technology, because that's one of our biggest problems, our human relationships. And I'm not only talking about men, women, I'm talking about business relationships um, and uh, all relationships we have in our lives. Also, uh, the relationship we have to technology, the relationship we have to the, our environment. Um, if we start with ourselves and start treating everything and everyone with consciousness and in a connected and present way, I think each and every one of us actually can do something about it. Then maybe we can decrease all this powerlessness. Maybe we can decrease the wish for a leader or um, for someone who tells us what to do or for someone who controls the others to do what I want them to do. Uh, I think we can decrease that. And I think we have to start with this problem of loneliness and what is the antidote? 
connect to people. In reality, yes, sometimes you use um, digital tools, they are very helpful, but then really meet people, go out in nature, connect um, to everything and everyone, also your technology. I, as I said, I'm a tech enthusiast, I will not say do not use your technology, treat it in a good way. And if there should ever come the time where the machines take over, think for yourself, would I want this machine have me treat the way I treat it? So you can start today. When I heard that the first time, I thought, oh, good, I'm safe. I'm very good to my technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ursula, we've been talking for over two hours. What's the best message or the best way that perhaps you can help us wrap this up and send us away with? What's the one thing that you want our viewers and leader and listeners to take away from this two-hour conversation with Ursula today? I would say um, turn uncertainty into an advantage, see it as a gift, and connect to other people. Wow. Turn uncertainty into advantage, see it as a gift, and connect to other people. Fantastic. Ursula Aysin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola, for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 